<clears throat> Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Despite the rain, we can know and sense your presence with us. And we thank you for that. And pray that you'll bless our time in the word and every part of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James 2. We're finally to chapter 2. Halfway through, almost halfway through camp. This is kind of the, the middle day, kind of. It's just like sets, we set it apart for mission, so we have four days before, four days after, because Friday's just kind of a kickoff. So, you know, we don't, so we, you know, we're kind of right in that middle zone. And it's a kickoff. It's just kind of to get us rolling. So uh, we're all the way up to chapter two, almost halfway through. Uh, James 2, beginning of verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you will pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, and so this takes us back to verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1 that just kind of briefly touched uh, on this subject of the Christian's attitude about wealth. Uh, and uh, evidently it was something that was going on because he kind of pretty much pinpoints uh, this treatment of the rich versus the treatment of the poor. So obviously um, he has seen it going on in the church. Uh, of course, we know Jesus addressed this uh, and talked about money. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, he talks more about money than any other subject uh, in, in uh, his uh, various messages. So Jesus discussed uh, the problem that people have with money. Uh, Paul told us that the love of money is the root of all evil in 1 Timothy 6.10. So the problem is as old as man. Uh, so it's really... Uh, what James wants to do is to diagnose the problem, uh, get, make them aware of it so that they can take care of it before it becomes uh, something that hurts or harms the church. And uh, we, want to do, we don't want partiality uh, t- to rule the day in our churches. We want to treat everyone uh, equally, fairly, and love them all to Jesus, as what we've been talking about here in camp meeting. The first thing we see is a false measurement of man. We're going to see a false measurement of man and then the true measurement of man. Um, and James's specific concern is that a Christian congregation shall not seek to court the favor of the wealthy for the sake of their wealth. Uh, and that's, you know, again, maybe today we would think of uh, the suburban middle class church. Uh, uh, Try, you know, or maybe a, a, a new congregation striving to gain a foothold in the community so they're uh, looking for the upper class or whatever to, to make the inroads there. Or maybe they're trying to attract the people who will help them pay the budgets. <laughs> you know, uh, and I just uh, hear about a year ago, I guess it was, maybe not even quite a year ago, uh, one of the churches closed just down the street from us because they were unwilling to pay their uh, their budgets or whatever they called it in the CMA church, uh, not free CMA, but Free Methodist Church. I'm not sure what they call their uh, assessments, but 
they didn't want to pay them because they wanted to put more into their community efforts. Well, the, the problem is in a free Methodist church, like it is in many churches and denominations, they don't own the building. The denomination owns the building. And so they had to go elsewhere uh, because they were unwilling to pay their assessments uh, and com- par- participate in the denominational uh, rules and regulations. So, you know, uh, we, uh, we, are, we, we become aware of those things, that we need to money for certain things, but we have to be careful that we don't let money rule the day. So uh, the first thing we see is the command in verse 1. And again, he addresses it, starts it off with that phrase, my brethren, to kind of soften the blow. Uh, you'll see him use that term, my uh, brethren, or my beloved brethren, to kind, kind of soften the blows as he hammers home these different uh, things that he is concerned about. Uh, so he talks, first of all, about the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, and glory is actually a word that comes out of the Old Testament, which, again, you know, these... New Testament writers are very familiar with the Old Testament. And so it's not unusual or, uh, that they would use words you know, that they're familiar with or phrases uh, out of Old Testament or the way that they worship um, as, as a part of their Jewish faith. So the expression, do not hold the faith, means as you hold the faith. These were Christian men and women to whom James was writing. It was the church that he was writing to. And they, they, uh, were, they were well aware of the meaning of the Christian faith. Uh, they knew about Jesus. This was the first uh, century church. They knew about Jesus. Many of them had heard Jesus, had uh, been in, the, in the, uh, the, the gatherings and various places where Jesus had been. And so they were very familiar with him. This was not something they didn't understand. So they were well aware of the Christian faith and what it meant. Uh, and in the phrase with partiality, the exhortation uh, is this, show no prejudice, show no prejudice. Phillips puts it uh, this way, he says, don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be careful uh, uh, with our faith, you know, and how we treat others. The second thing is in verses 2 to 4, and that's the illustration that James uses here, um, uh, these verses maybe uh, are a kind of ethics for church ushers. Uh, but in the first century church, uh, they were probably addressed not to an usher, but to any member of the congregation who had a choice seat for the service. So evidently, you know, they all wanted the front row, you know, like Bob Euchre uh, wanted the front row. Uh, now everybody wants the back row, <laughs> uh, it seems like. Uh, so, the, the, again, uh, it was, had something to do with the choice, choice seats and how they were being uh, doled out. So perhaps James had observed the, this preferential treatment there in the Jerusalem church, and he was speaking from uh, the, the times that he spent there with the congregation. Uh, the assembly, the word assembly here, actually in the Greek means synagogue. Uh, so uh, that would be the place where the Christians, probably at that time a mixture between the converted Jews and Gentiles, where they met to worship because they had no church buildings of their own, being uh, just early uh, in their development. So it is the term used for the Jewish synagogues and was a word and a form of worship that the early church had borrowed or brought 
directly from their Hebrew ancestry. Uh, however, <clears throat> uh, this is the only place in the New Testament where a Christian congregation is called a synagogue. So probably because of James being familiar with the, uh, <clears throat> the synagogue in Jerusalem and, and where a lot of the worship took place, he used that term where with many of the other letters they referred to, to churches or meeting places uh, outside of Jerusalem where they may not have been meeting in the synagogues if, uh, but rather in people's homes in the open field or wherever they could find a place uh, to worship. So that may be why that only here we see it referred to as synagogue. But here we see the, the contrast. Uh, a man with gold rings and the poor man. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I guess there's always a tendency to kind of feel uh, drawn to those, you know, that look affluent, sound affluent, uh, sound, you know, would make a, a big impact on the church as opposed to those that might come in with, you know, uh, well, today, holy, you know, tears in their jeans wouldn't mean that, but because <laughs> they might have they might have bought them that way. But, you know, worn clothes or maybe not as clean as they ought to be. And we, we kind of shy away from that person and, be, and we might be more attracted to someone who is affluent. And that's what was going on here. Uh, and, and if the well-dressed man were the kind of person that's described here in verses 6 and 7, even if a, a member, uh, his profession of religion had little uh, effect on his life in, in, as, as far as transforming him. Uh, so that unchristian act was to immediately judge the worth of the man by the appearance of his apparel. And uh, we, we are warned not to judge by the outward because Jesus judges the inward, the heart. And uh, so that's what Paul is warning them uh, against here. Now, the, the gold rings would indicate someone of rank, uh, a senator, senatorial rank, or someone high up in the Roman government. Uh, because they were the ones who wore gold rings, uh, and the only ones allowed to. Uh, fine apparel would signify a toga, which was uh, the rich raiment of the day. And so it, it could have been someone seeking political office, and that's why they came to church or to a gathering, was really just to garner votes. We don't do that today, though, so we don't have to worry about it. They don't go to churches to get votes, right? Isn't that against the law? But anyway... Uh, they would get the seats of honor, whatever they were, whatever they were, whichever ones would be termed uh, the seats of honor, while those that came in who were, looked poor would uh, be seated either on the floor they, or stand off to the, in, the, in the side, in the wings maybe. It's, uh, but sit here at my footstool could be read at my feet. So actually thinking of them in terms of in a lower position is, is basically what James is saying. Not, you know, it's not necessarily about uh, the posture, but the fact that they just weren't thought of as highly. And so they would have put up, been put off. Uh, and the, the, uh, this phrase, uh, have you not shown parti- or the question, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? Uh, the, New Amplified, the Amplified New Testament renders it discriminating among your own. You know, really, the, within the church, we shouldn't see that kind of uh, action or reaction to people as they come in. Uh, so what kind of evil thoughts were, the, were these misguided Christians thinking? 
that, that caused them. Uh, that fine clothes are marks of, a, of fine men and that shabby clothes mean shabby character. Uh, that wealth is a guide to the worth of persons. That financial standing should make a difference in acceptance in the church. That social and economic caste systems are acceptable to Christ and are appropriate to his church. I mean, these are things we have to ask ourselves uh, in, in terms of how we treat people that come in. Uh, do we treat them just like we treat each other? The, you know, do we treat them like we want to be treated? It goes back to what Jesus said, do unto others as you would that men should do unto you. So how would you want to be treated if you walked in? You know? We went to one church, visited when I was between pastorates and looking for a church. We went to one church and not one person came up to us. Uh, we found out later the pastor was on vacation, but no one else, you know, we went in and, and uh, went through worship and, and heard somebody preach. We don't know who it was because he wasn't the pastor, you know, but not until we were leaving the building did one lady come up to us who we knew from the schools. I mean, uh, she, I think uh, maybe one of her kids went to school with Kristen. And uh, so she knew who we were. We, we had recognized her, and she said something to us. But other than that, you know, no one acknowledged us. So I, why? I don't know. But that's not a good thing. Uh, we need to treat others the way we want to be treated. So if I felt like that wasn't the way to treat people... When they came to church, I certainly don't want to treat people that way and they come to my church. I want to welcome them with open arms, whoever they are. Uh, Dr. Uh, Finney Seprasi, some of you may be familiar with him. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> he, was a, uh, the, uh, he was a founder of the first congregation known as the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, and he didn't leave the church, the Methodist church, out of doctrine he left it because of his expressed desire to preach full salvation to the poor. Because uh, the, the church in California didn't want to reach out to the communities and to the areas and to people that he wanted to reach out to. And that's uh, why he left. Uh, and, and, and so he felt that they were too uh, uh, concerned about the wealthy, the middle, upper middle class and those, to, to see beyond that, to, to God's full mission for, for any church. And so that's why how the uh, Church of the Nazarene, one of their first congregations, was formed. Now John Wesley wrote in London in August 4th of 1786, how then is it possible that Methodism, that is the religion of the heart, though it flourishes now as a green bay tree, should continue in the state? For the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal, consequent, consequently they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally increase in pride, in anger, in the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. Is there no way to prevent this? This continual uh, declension of pure religion? We ought, we ought not to forbid people to be diligent and frugal. We must exhort all Christians to gain all they can, and to save all they can, that is, in effect, to grow rich, what way then, I ask again, can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way, and there is, one, and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can 
and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. And John Wesley was a perfect example. If I remember, he, he, he figured he could live, I believe it was on 20 pounds a year. I think it was either 20 or 30. So, so it was, he, he came up to an amount that he could live on and uh, everything else he gave away to start orphanages, to, to give food to, to the needy, to, you know, to provide for uh, other people in other ways in the community. Everything else he gave away. He said, this is the amount I need to live on. The rest of it's you know, going to be distributed. Uh, and that was the way he lived, exactly the way he preached. And as the church, that's the, the way we should also live. That we don't uh, get hung up because he says, look what happened to the church when they got hung up on riches and what happened inside their hearts, and how, how then they began to then treat other people as a result of it. Now the next part of our lesson is in verses 5 and 6. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you, do, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So we saw the false measurement of man. Now we see a true measurement of man. And the writings of James are varied in, in style. Often he writes short sentences that kind of remind us of the Proverbs. Uh, but here he is as careful as Paul in lining up his sequences of argument. First in, in 5 in the first part of verse 6, he talks about God's choice for the poor. Listen means to wait a minute, pay attention. Uh, we talked about, we were t- I think I was talking to Jake er, uh, yesterday, and we were talking about how the, you know, the English language sometimes is so difficult because we don't really express ourselves very well. Uh, depending on how we say listen, it can have different meanings. Here it means to wait a minute, pay attention. So it's more emphatic, imperative uh, in its tone. Uh, but he, he wanted them to, to think uh, perhaps of what Jesus said in the use of verily, verily, when he would try to get their attention, when he was trying to uh, make a point. Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. So it, it was a way of trying to uh, uh, emphasize what he was going to say next. Uh, but here he is sensitive to the mistreatment of the poor and to the often callous and inhuman actions of the rich. Uh, including, it says, dragging them into court, uh, probably for debts. And we remember the story Jesus told about uh, the, the man who uh, was forgiven a, a huge debt, then went out and beat someone else to get a small debt. Uh, and, and this is what uh, James maybe was thinking, some of the words of his, his brother, his half-brother Jesus. Uh, but James' argument is that you have dishonored those who have whom God has chosen. It is not that God has limited his choice to the poor, but that as a matter of history, they have been his first choice. And perhaps, as I've thought about that over the years, the reason is, is because they're the most willing to listen. They're the most willing to listen. They have less to lose, maybe. The second thing we see is, the man, uh, is a man's poor choice of the rich. Uh, favoring the rich and stumbling the poor simply does not make sense for the Christian. It should, shouldn't really be part of uh, our thought process. 
Uh, John Calvin commented that it is odd to honor one's executioners and, and in the meantime to injure one's friends. <laughs> so that's the way he thought of it. Uh, it was probably the wealthy Jews to whom James had reference. Uh, in his native Palestine, where he lived there, he had seen the rich Sadducees oppress the church and may have been familiar with Paul's experiences in some of the Gentile cities as well. Uh, so three specific charges are leveled here by John, or I'm sorry, by James, uh, against rich men who favor the, uh, the church, or whose favor the church sought to gain. Oppression and court trials were the first two. Blasphemy is the third. Oppression and court trials, and then blasphemy. Uh, in the uh, NASB, it says, Is not the rich who oppress you and personally, or literally they themselves, drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you were called? Uh, and so the, uh, the reference points to the experience of baptism, in which the noble name, the name of Christ, was invoked upon them. And the writer's use of that, the name instead of God or Christ, seems to reflect his Jewish training, in which there was always so great a reverence for God that they even hesitated to speak the name of deity. So that's the true, uh, the true measurement uh, of men. And the final thought today is a rule that is always right. And look at verse 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you, you, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in even one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we see the, the, the royal law there in, in uh, chapter 2 verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in this paragraph James brings us back as we must always be brought back when we evaluate the character of our conduct. Conduct to the basic rules or uh, law of the, of the Christian. And here again, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this law for the guidance of Christian conduct, he says, is according to the scriptures. So it's quoted from the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18 and reaffirmed again in the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 22.39. These are not unfamiliar. It is the royal law because it is the word of of our Lord. It is the royal law also because when it is kept in deed and truth, we cannot break any of God's laws uh, that governs our relationships with our fellow man. Those two reasons why it, are why that it is the royal law. And the keeping of this law is the keeping of all. So the second thing we see is the partiality uh, is sin. The author is moving toward the conclusion now of his argument if Christians observe the law of love, they will be pleasing to God. But when they show partiality, they are committing sin. So in verses 9 to 11, he anticipates, he's already anticipating the objection to what he's saying. Why make so much of this matter of respect of persons? You know, why, why are we making a big deal out of it? It's only a single offense. 
And it surely, you know, can't be taken all that seriously. So, I mean, he's already thinking like they're going to think, you know, when they hear this and what they're going to say. And so he's going to answer it before they get a chance to say it. And so the, this objection, James refutes by pointing out that to break any part of the law is to break all the law, the whole law. So uh, Bishop William Taylor used to illustrate this truth by comparing the law to a fence with ten gates. He said to go out any one of the gates is to go outside the law. So when you think about it in terms like that, we, we get an understanding that to break any of it, even one, we're still outside the law, outside of what God's will for our lives is. Any sin, according to verse 10, breaks God's law. And what, does, and what does James mean when he affirms that if a man stumble in one point, he is guilty of all? Uh, he certainly doesn't mean that breaking one commandment is as bad as, uh, in its consequences as breaking all ten, but nor does he mean that the consequences of a minor failure are as serious as the results of flagrant sin. Uh, some of the more extreme, the Stoics, declared that the theft of a penny was as bad as killing your parents. Uh, so, you, you know, so they, some of those blew this uh, clear out of proportion. Uh, but the, so the, uh, James was a, a Christian, not a Stoic. He was a Christian, not a Stoic. So James, or Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus taught, James, Jude, Jesus, I'm getting all these J's mixed up, John. Um, but Jesus taught that a man must love God with all his heart. And any sin is evidence that my love for God is, is something less than complete. So any sin is as bad as another in the sense that it breaks my fellowship with God. That's what was the, the sad part of the Garden of Eden was it broke relationship. It broke fellowship with God, sin. And so if that sin is not forgiven and that fellowship is not restored, a man has severed his vital union with God. And in this sense, a man is guilty of all. Keeping all of the other commandments is of no value as in, in satisfying God as long as I reject his will at any point in my life. So in this sense, a man is guilty of breaking the whole law. That was what James was referring to, though not the whole of the law, because he offends against love, which is the fulfilling of the law. A man cannot commit sin of willfully despising human personality and be pleasing to God any more than, we can, than he can violate another commandment and still retain God's favor. So partiality is serious, James is saying. Partiality is serious. In verse 9, James has said that if we show partiality, we are convicted of the law as transgressors. He now seeks to show how serious this transgression is. The same God who said, Thou shalt not kill... Uh, I mean, sorry, thou shalt not commit adultery, commanded thou shalt not kill. And this kind of personal, uh, personality destruction is murder. Uh, this partiality he's talking about is a form of murder. James here reflects Jesus' ex, Jesus extension of the commandment against killing. Remember in Matthew five twenty-one to 22, to be angry at a man is devastating. To hold a person in contempt is in God's sight one form of committing murder. Because we commit murder in our hearts, Jesus said, right? So men can be destroyed by a wrong attitude as effectively as with a physical blow. So the last thing we see is to live in the light of God's judgment in verses 12 and 13. We cannot please God in this life if our conduct violates the golden rule. 
when we face the judgment day, the same rule will be in effect. And so James exhorts us, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The, the Christian is not under the law of Moses. Since Christ, we are under the law of liberty. We are freed from the petty details of the old law, but we shall be judged by Christ's law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We read in Matthew 22. So this is both sterner and milder than the Mosaic law. It will be a deeper going judgment than that of man, for it will not stop short uh, at particular precepts or even at the outward act, whatever it may be, but will penetrate even to the temper and to the motive of the heart. So on the other hand, it sweeps away all those anxious questions as to the exact performance or each separate precept. So, and if there has been in you the true spirit of love to God and love to man, that is accepted as the, full, uh, the real fulfillment of the law. So the stern side of New Testament judgment is clearly stated here, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And Jesus again supported that precept in Matthew 6:14 for if ye forgive not men their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses but even so God is still a God of mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment James says so the sound psychological principle behind this is the fact that the faults we see in others are usually the faults we hide in ourselves <laughs> We can see them, but seldom want to look in the mirror and see ourselves for what we are. So our prayer needs to be the prayer of the psalmist in 139th Psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And quit looking at the other guy and make sure you're where you need to be spiritually. That's what James is saying. Let me not sin by being partial to the rich, or by despising the poor, even under nicer names. Teach me to judge my conduct in the light of your word. And let me not be guided by my own fears or by the prejudices of the day in which I live. Lead me in the paths in which I ought to go, and then I can come before you unafraid. Any thoughts? Questions? About what James is talking about there. And that's why it sounds, you know, murder sounds like, wow, that's, I mean, you know, that's like the worst, you know. But then when we think of it, how would we feel if someone treated us like that, you know, 
Does it kill our spirit? You know, does it does does it do something to us? You know, obviously, if it does something to us, when we do it to them, it would do something to them. And that's why I think he wanted that kind of strong uh, wording that that or that idea of how we can murder through our motives or our expressions, you know, as easily uh, as by taking a gun or a knife, you know. Anything else? All right, well, enjoy the beautiful weather.